0: Welcome to Tales from the Crips, a whitewater storytelling podcast. I'm your host Kevin Crips, and my guest today is someone that I've known for many years. Uh, I first knew him as Deep South Paddler on the Mountain Buzz internet forum, and he would post long, effusive messages about his epic paddling trips at Confluence, which Confluence, by the way, is this cesspool of a whitewater park in downtown Denver. And after reading all this, I was like, I don't think I can handle this guy. I'm just going to avoid him, but. One of my friends, Steve, who's more friendly than I am, invited him one day to um, run Foxton, which is this local class three run near Denver. And um, we met him at an intersection. We'd already set shuttle and we started paddling, but then he wanted to stay and surf this wave. And he's like, let's just forget about the rest of the run. And I said, hey, let's just ditch this guy. Like, we don't need to deal with this guy. But he ended up coming along and... I was still not sure about him, but I was also desperate for some class three and class four paddling partners that matched my enthusiasm for this newfound sport that we discovered. And uh, he was it. He had the enthusiasm. So it wasn't long before I found us paddling after work down Clear Creek. And I remember one time he was looking up at the canyon walls and he was like, man, look at this light coming down as the sun's setting. This is so awesome. And he's looked at the rapid below us and he's like, man, look at this rapid. This is going to be some action. And I kind of looked around and I was like, man, it is a pretty cool sunset off the canyon walls. And this is going to be some pretty good action. And so like after that, many more paddling adventures ensued. I spent decade plus chasing his gear down the river. And um, that's just how I know him though. Others of you may know him different ways. Uh, you may know him as the guy that's never met a steep manky rock booth that he didn't like. You may know him as the guy who, pulls his skirt as soon as he gets stuck in the hole, collects all his gear in the eddy because it says it's easier than battling out the hole. Uh, you might know him as the guy who gave you an excessively detailed oral, just oral dissertation on that rapid that you, you just scouted. Uh, you might know him as the guy that has a full beer, a full chest of beer at the takeout with chips and salsa to go with it. I know my daughter knows him as the guy who stars in a huge collection of kayaking swim stories that I've told her throughout her childhood, but Perhaps most of all, he's known as the father of Bailey Fest and the liberator of First Falls. So with that, welcome to the show, Ian Foley. Oh, thanks, Kevin. Great to be here. Hope I hope I did you justice in in the introduction.
1: Definitely justice. I'm glad you mentioned saving my gear for the last 15, 20 years, because that's thousands and thousands of dollars of gear. So um, (laughs) that's why I always make you go first. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so today we're going to do like a little bit of a different story than normal and not necessarily an adventure in the woods but uh talk about this thing called bailey fest so for for kayakers not familiar with colorado boating or, or non-kayakers who might be listening for some reason like tell us a little bit about what we're talking about when we talk about bailey and bailey canyon and what does that what does that mean to colorado's uh, colorado boaters
1: Yeah, Bailey is, um, I mean, it's a jewel for Colorado boaters. It's on the North Fork of the South Platte. It's uh, about an hour drive from Denver, so really close to the metro area. But it's away from the road. It's like 10 miles where you go through this canyon with about four or five miles of just beautiful, continuous class four, five rapids. And um, the big thing about Bailey is it's got artificial plumbing, there's a tunnel from Lake Dillon high up on the uh, uh, over the continental divide that pipes water down to Denver. So Denver water turns up the tunnel and it basically fills the river. So when there's nothing else going, they'll turn on the tunnel to bring water to thirsty Denver and we've got kayaking. So, you know, the outstanding beauty of the run, high quality whitewater, and then water when there's no runoff, I mean, it, proximity to Denver. These things just make Bailey just this Colorado jewel. Um, so, and it's one of my favorite runs of
0: all time. So if it's so great, why am I always complaining about it?
1: Well, that's because you're a pessimist and you complain about it, but that's why I'm the optimist. That's why we work. You know, I say, this is so awesome. And you're, you're like, I was just thinking this sucks, but maybe he's right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> my only complaint is that people should not go to Bailey when it's not that high during runoff, when everything else is running, but for some reason it always happens. But anyway, Bailey is a gem. It's a beautiful place. And the plumbing aspect is like so key to making our Colorado season um, a real season. Um, So now when we talk about, well, actually give give us a little sense of like, well, yeah, let's go go straight into it. So like this this Bailey Fest, this Whitewater Festival, like it didn't exist. No one ever talked about it before I heard it out of your mouth. So how did you dream this up? Like, where did the idea come from?
1: Well, you know, I think some of the, it really started kind of way back when I started kayaking. I I learned to kayak when I lived in new Orleans, which is, you know, the lowest gradient spot in the North American continent. Um, So not a good place to kayak, but um, I would go to North Carolina or Tennessee and take some lessons. And um, i read American Whitewater and uh, in the journal. So I started reading American Whitewater Journal to get all fired up about maybe one of these days I can go kayaking. And I read about like Golly Fest and all these releases and big parties they had around the releases on like the East Coast and the Southeast. And I just it sounded like so much fun. And I was stuck in New Orleans with nowhere to paddle. And I was reading these classic stories of like awesome whitewater and a big release just for kayakers and a big party and everybody having fun. And I just not even knowing anything about the kayaking scene. I just thought that's what it was. Um, so when I moved to Colorado, I was super excited. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go find the releases and go to the parties. (laughs) And there weren't any. And I was like, well, where are the releases? And, and why aren't there any releases? And, uh, So I was confused and, you know, I kind of posted stuff online like, hey, why aren't there any releases? You know, it's like, well, Colorado Water Law is super complex and doesn't work that way. And so I was really disappointed to hear that there weren't these big release party kind of things in Colorado. But um, the first kind of uh, seedling of that idea was, American whitewater stories. Like I've never been to Gollyfest, never been to any of the releases out east. Um, But I thought that's the way to do it. So that's kind of the initial seed that kind of first started the bug, I think.
0: Nice. It definitely seems to be a common misconception of Southeast boaters that they're that we're going to have releases out here, but uh, water water waters definitely acts differently in the West.
1: You know, when I came out to Colorado, it just it struck me that we really should have that because there's lots of reservoirs in Colorado. There's lots of water being moved around, whether it's, you know, the Roberts Tunnel water, putting water in the North Fork of the South Platte through Bailey or um on the South Platte from Cheesman Reservoir. The Colorado River's got all sorts of dams. So Colorado seemed like we should be doing it, but water law in Colorado is unique. It's this um it's a property right people own water rights owners own the rights to water and the way colorado water law works from what i've learned is it can only be used for beneficial use which was defined in like the late 1800s and beneficial use is consumptive use you use it to irrigate your farmland you use it to for drinking water um kayaking is not beneficial use um So there wasn't any kayaking in the 1800s. (laughs) I
0: thought thought some of the old kayakers around here were still around. Um, (laughs) So, so given all that, how do you organize? How do you have a festival if you don't have a release plan?
1: Yeah. So the I think the uh, it's really kind of a really a serendipitous story of how we got to there. You know, it didn't start as a festival. What it started as is, you know, pretty quickly when I moved to Colorado, I moved here in 2005, you know, started paddling Bailey about a year later, and it was my favorite run. I just loved it. And like every boater who paddles Bailey, you're always hanging on the edge of your seat. Is the tunnel coming up? When's the tunnel going to go on? You know, and it was random. They just turn it on. They turn it off. You never knew when. And when they turn it on, you go because they could turn it off the next day.
0: It's been responsible for many a broken boat, I would say. That's right.
1: And, you know, on the shuttles at the takeout, we're drinking beers. Everybody's always kind of thinking, boy, if they could just turn it on or turn it up or turn it on the weekends or at night after work. Um, And that was just wishful thinking. Um, So what really the end that I got was there used to be Mountain Buzz, the forum that all the kayakers talked on, which is now um dead to me. It's just rafters. <laughs> <laughs> dead to me, but so. and it's been overtaken by Facebook, which I abhor, but anyway, Mountain Buzz rest in peace. Um there was a guy who was the com- you know, informal Mountain Buzz Denver Water communication guy. Denver Water would send him an email and he'd post it on Mountain Buzz every Friday like this is what Denver Water thinks they're doing so that we could get some info to plan kayaking during the weekend. Well, That guy gave up his uh, unpaid, not so luxurious post of being the Mountain Buzz Denver Water rep. And he's like, posted online, like, hey, anybody wanna do this? And I was like, hell yes. Like, (laughs) I wanted to be that guy because I wanted to go kayaking. And I was like, I didn't wanna wait around for anybody else. I wanted the straight mainline information from Denver Water. Um, So he kind of emailed them once a week. Once I got the contact, it was the Denver Water Operations Manager who ran the tunnel. Super cool guy uh, named Dave Bennett. So instead of just emailing him once a week, I was watching that gauge every single day. I'd call him every time the tunnel changed, literally, for like over a <laughs> six-month period. I mean, we would, I would call him up sometimes five days a week, like, saw the tunnel went up 50 CFS. What are you guys doing? Or it dropped. What's going on? The amazing thing is, I mean, every time it was different, the amount of variables that go into their operation were just astounding. And so what I started doing is learning their operation by talking to them, just being naturally curious, but I wanted to learn it because I thought it would help me figure out when they're going to turn the tunnel on so I could help plan my kayaking. Um, and I had twins at this time, twin newborns. And so planning your kayaking was very important with newborns. Like you couldn't screw around. So that's really started it. And, uh, when I took over the, um, you know, mountain buzz, like water communication, informal guy, whatever you want to call it. The guy that handed it over to me, sent me a note and he was like, look, don't even talk to them about releases. I've been over it with them every which possible way. There's no way you can get it done. Just don't even bring it up. And um when you tell me it can't be done, I kind of look at it as like, yeah, I'll see for myself. I don't that almost kind of motivates me to just try even more. So I kind of had in the back of my mind when I got this kind of communication thing of I was looking for the entry route. Can we get them to turn on the tunnel to go kayaking? But at that point, it really hadn't become a Bailey Fest idea. Um, Now, over that kind of period where I was talking to them, I went into a deep dive. I researched everything. Like I, I studied Denver Water's operation system, all their reservoirs, their pipes, any publicly available documents. I found this huge environmental impact study put forth as like, Denver Water wanted to make a huge dam on the right where Waterton Canyon is. And it's called the Two Forks Dam. It got huge resistance in, uh, I think, the 80s. And it was finally discontinued. And Denver Water agreed to get the federal folks out of their hair to do this big impact study and identify ways to work with user groups, fishermen, like fish habitat, like all these key things. And what they did is they identified whitewater as being an outstanding resource on the North Fork in their whole impact study. Mm -hmm. And for most of the other stuff like fishing or like the habitat for fish, they identified operational things to do to improve those as part of their business. Mm -hmm. But they identified whitewater kayaking as something important and outstanding, remarkable value, I think is what they called them. Yeah. But they didn't have anything in their plan on how to modify their operations to improve that value for that stakeholder group. So when I found that, I was like, that's my end. They know it's important, but they don't have any way to do it. And so I just went down the rabbit hole. And so I did a bunch of research and I, I got a plan. And what my plan was is uh, people had asked Denver Water for over a decade to make a release on Bailey. But they'd say things like, turn it on every weekend, turn it up every day at night, and then turn it down during the day. They were asking for things that Denver Water could not do. They were completely unfeasible. So when you ask for something that's unfeasible, you've got a 0% probability of success. So what I decided to do is take a completely different path, which was understand how they operate, to a very detailed level figure out what they can do and then ask them for something that i know they can do that's got a very high likelihood of them being able to do and i thought that would give me a higher probability of success and i also came about this from kind of a i was negotiating negotiating with my ex-wife to go kayaking while i had newborns at that time and what i learned that was a very powerful negotiation lesson, which was, if you ask for too much, you get shot down every time. If you ask for the bare minimum of what you need, that gives you your highest chance of actually getting something. So that's the approach I took with Denver Water. Um, And so what I came up with is I thought, yeah, go
0: ahead. So having twins was actually how how Bailey Fest was uh, successfully started is what you're telling us. (laughs)
1: that's one of the key ingredients of success. I was so motivated to kayak. I didn't have the time to wait around and it made me a really good kayaking negotiator. (laughs) 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 But, um, so what I came up with is I thought like, what do we need? What's like the minimum, like what's a good ask? Not too much, but just what we need and tried to whittle that down into like a real crisp first ask. And, what I came to was, well, during runoff, you don't need Bailey because you got natural runoff. And then once runoff is done, it would be nice to have it, you know, but we got gore a lot of the time. And what you really want is you want them to release at a time when people can come, like so the weekend. You don't want to like plan a release for like Tuesday afternoon or like Tuesday during the day. And so what I kind of came up with was the minimum ask. That would be something that would be great for us, but that they could probably execute would be a single weekend release during August, the first half of August, which is when statistically they delivered the most water. So I downloaded all their water history. I put together this big PowerPoint presentation and my pitch was in August, you have a 90% chance or greater of delivering the amount of water we need for the release. But instead of just turning it on willy-nilly, like maybe it's Thursday, maybe it's Friday, maybe it's whatever, just plan on doing it the weekend for that one weekend and turn down the other branch. There's two forks that come in to meet Denver's needs, the North Fork and then the main stem of the South Platte. So my pitch was you need this amount of water anyway. Just turn up the North Fork, turn down the South. You don't pull any more water than Denver needs. So you're not wasting water, but you can plan the delivery out. And so I called up Denver Water, asked for a meeting, went down to their office. He bought me lunch at the cafeteria. We sat down and he started telling me like, yeah, you know, we can't do releases. I've been through this, you know, really wish I could help. And I was like, okay, I get it. But let me show you my presentation. And I walked him through it he had a couple objections, you know, we can't commit to it. And I was like, well, best efforts. I think you could probably do it nine out of 10 times. If it doesn't work, that's fine. We'll take the nine out of 10 chance. And he said, okay, we can do that. And we had a handshake gentleman's agreement. And I, I walked out of Denver waters office with a release and awesome. I was freaking out. Like I thought I had like a 1% chance. Like, and I, I, qu- I didn't even know what to do with it. Like I, I asked thinking I would get shut down. And then once I got it, I was like, holy crap. Like I got it. He's going to do it. And that was the moment where I instantly realized in the parking lot outside of Denver Water. I was like, I got to do a festival. I got to release. It can't just be a release. Like we got to do the whole festival thing. So that's, gotcha. yeah. that's the kind of genesis of Bailey Fest. The people at Denver Water were really cool. They realized that there were other stakeholders, fishermen, you know, outdoors people, kayakers. They knew that they had a resource there and they wanted to be good stewards. Um, and so they had a good faith interest of helping these user groups out in any way they could. But they're, they're, they've got like a billion dollar business delivering water to millions of people they're not going to just lose a bunch of money or waste a bunch of water just so a couple kayakers can go kayaking. So they've got a delicate balance, you know?
0: Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And
1: so we struck the balance and they, and would it, and I really think it's the great way to do it. Cause if we would have asked for more, they wouldn't have done it. And now what you've got is when you do a planned release, several things open up. Number one, people from all over the state or, you know, Wyoming, Utah, New Mexico, whatever, these people can all come paddle Bailey now during that weekend before nobody would drive seven hours from Durango to paddle Bailey, knowing that they could just shut off the tunnel when they're an hour away. So Bailey was really something that only people within a couple hour radius would paddle, or if you were driving through town. So, that was a great thing. Um, big opener there. And it also helped bring a lot of new people to the run. You know, people who were just first stepping up, who kind of wanted to get in with other people. It kind of became this rally point of, like, I know it's going to be on. I know a bunch of people are going to go. That's my that's my time to paddle Bailey the first time. So there's, uh, you know, it would be great if we could have Bailey turned on more. I mean, it's been running over 500 CFS for over a month right now so it's been great but having that one planned weekend that opens up a lot more possibilities
0: absolutely I don't think anyone would disagree with that um, and good points about being able to people from wider wider distances being able to enjoy it um, so getting into the festival itself um, what were the what were the challenges you faced what was the reception you got from you know local people there and all of that?
1: Yeah. So there was a lot, there was a lot that went into that. You know, my first thing was, well, and the funny thing is I had never been to one of these East coast festivals. So I just had this vision in my mind, like almost a fairy tale that I've, of what I had read. It's like you're reading a fiction book and then you try to recreate it in life or something. So from what I read, my thought was, well, First, you need a good river and you need water. So we got those two covered with the release. But then you need like a campground, a place for everybody to hang out, like the campground. And you also need like a party, you know, some kind of big event. You got to throw a party. And um, so the first big things I tried to figure out were campground and party. Um, There were the first year... I had to scramble because I got the release and the release date was like two months later. And so it was a scramble. I just got some, they used to do dispersed camping on Buffalo Creek road. There's about like 45 minutes away from uh, the run. And so I just scoped that out and went out there on like Thursday and we just piled a bunch of people in there and it was, it was good enough the first year, but I, it was really hard to find camping. The campgrounds, you couldn't bring 200 kayakers to a campground and reserve the individual sites. And they have rules for how many cars, whatever. I went and talked to all these different like places and properties all up and down around the town of Bailey. I mean, I just hit it all. I was driving around. I was walking into places like, Hey, can we camp in your you know, yard in this hotel place or all this stuff? Um, my, and this is where like, you just keep on chipping away. Like I didn't know what the solution was but I just kept on trying. I was like undeterred. I was like, I got to figure this out. Um, so I called this fly fishing ranch at the put in, um, rawhide fly fishers is I think what their name was. And they have this beautiful property. That's just total flat grassy land. That would be a great spot for a festival. Great tons of great car camping, whatever. I called them up, just found them randomly on the internet and just cold called them. And the guy was really cool and, and said, you know, we can't help you. That's not what we're not really into that. But let me give you this guy's name. He might be interested. So he gave me the name of this guy, Bart Berger. And I called him up and he said, Yeah, come down and meet me. And uh all this was happening as I was trying to as Bailey Fest was coming up, I was doing all this preparation. So it ended up that like I actually met this guy, Bart Berger. Um The weekend of the first Bailey Fest to try to plan out what we could do for the next one. So I met him at this like log cabin mansion up in the, you know, foothills, um, you know, half a mile from the North Fork of the South Platte. We get in his truck, we're driving down this little bumpy dirt road, and we drive. He opens the gate, we drive down, and we come down to the river, and it's this phenomenal, flat, beautiful meadow, completely undeveloped just huge. You can just pack tons and tons of kayakers there. And he's like, is this going to work? <laughs> and I was blown away. I was like, this is incredible. And the deal we cut, it was hilarious. We made a deal. He's like, okay, you can do it next year. Um, but what you got to pay me is you have to spray the field for thistles. So that was our deal. I could come camp for Bailey Fest. All I had to do is spray the field for thistles. Um, And this guy is super cool. He had a mountain bike race that ends there called the Bailey Hundo. Um, He had a like Colorado version of burning man with a bunch of naked hippie kind of wild eccentric people. Uh, That got shut down, unfortunately, but uh, so he loved doing stuff. So it's not like I wasn't the only one that he ever kind of did a fun deal like this with, but, um, that was the next key to success without the campground and the release, you wouldn't have Bailey fest. So those are like the two key ingredients that came together. And, um, so that was, that was challenging, you know, to find that. I got lucky with that without that, if I wouldn't have found that it just wouldn't have come together. Cause there's not a good place to camp. Yeah,
0: um, definitely you need a, you need a space, space to congregate for sure. Um, Tell us about the, the foamy race because I, I, I had a little bit of participation in that and I, I think that might have consumed <laughs> a better part of the year of your life.
1: Oh the foamy race. Oh man, that was so much fun. So uh, so once I got things up and running, I I became obsessed with Bailey Fest. It was like I was had it was like a kid at Christmas. I had so much fun with it. There was always something new I could do, always a way to take it up to the next level, and um, you know, quite frankly, early on, I wanted to have a big event, but I was, I was kind of concerned. I was like, well, what if I have a Bailey fest and nobody comes? Like because I'm starting from zero. Like I'm, I don't have a Golly fest or any history or any, you know, I'm, I don't have anything. So. I kind of had this feeling that like I really needed to make it big and worthwhile and fun and exciting because otherwise, why would anybody even come? Why wouldn't they just say like, Hey, I'm just going to go kayaking and go home. Like, why don't I going to come to your thing? So, um, kind of like a little kid in, you know, elementary school, like I hope somebody comes to my birthday party. So I really put a lot of effort into it to make it awesome. Um, so I had this idea of the foamy race, and there's a couple of things. One is, every other event in Colorado is a race. I don't really like races, you know that um, I'm not good enough to race. Every time there's a race or a playboating competition, I'm just on the sidelines. So I kind of had this idea, like, for the little band, for the shitty kayaker like myself, who will never win a race, who can never win anything, what would be equitable and fun? would be a foamy race every man can enter every man has equal chances regardless of how many times he swims tunnel and (laughs) make the race uh make the winner of a race some kind of like my idea was i'll do a foamy race people put in money like 20 bucks a pop or something and uh we'll raffle off a boat instead of doing like raffles i always thought were kind of boring it's like playing bingo like Number 342. Yay. It was, and I just had this idea of, I don't even know where I came up with it, but it was a tongue-in-cheek foamy race instead of a real race. So what I went and did was I got all these, I tried to get all these, you know, local shops and kayaking companies to sponsor me. And uh, Marty Cronin for, from Jackson Kayak is the man. He's no longer at Jackson but Marty ponied up a boat. And so it was you win the foamy race, you win a boat, which is a real deal. That's, that's, a, good, that's money, a good carrot. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the first year, I just made a little sluice box, just a rectangular box with a wood with little straight weirs and little cut out pieces of foam. It was so rinky dink. But, and after that, uh, this was at Bailey Fest too. Um, and then Marty, was like, man, we were paddling uh, on Sunday at Bailey Fest, and Marty was like, you should build a foamy race that's like a scale model of the entire river. And I just thought that was a great idea. And I was like, well, the entire river is too much, but I could build a model of Supermax. And so once I get an idea in my head and I'm fired up about it, I just go for it. So I had this idea of I'm going to build a scale model replica of Supermax, I'm gonna make a pumped recirculating whitewater course to race foamies down. And oh my God, I built this monstrous contraption that was like 16 feet long and in my garage. It, it was oh, too oh, big oh. for the garage.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll interject there because I because I had some experience with the foamy race because you called me up and you said you said, I have this great idea. We've got to have like an introduction video that will play on the big screen before the foamy race. And, you know, like, bring your video camera over. I got everything set up in my garage. Like, it's going to be awesome. So I came over one night and like, you know, you're living in this kind of like urban Denver house with a little garage and like the back alley detached from the house. And you open up the garage and like the entire garage is just like consumed by this, this foamy course. And like, this is huge thing. And you got pumps over here and stuff hooked up and water, water coming in and we are like, you're we like, okay, okay. I set up all the video camera stuff. And then you like crank the pump and like something just like explodes. And you're like, oh, don't worry about this. This, this happens all the time. We're, we'll just take a, make a run to home Depot. And I was like, wait, wait, are you serious about this? You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. Let's just go. And so we went to home Depot. We got another pump and ultimately we got it working, but it was, uh, it looked like a, a beast of a project.
1: It was definitely a Rube Goldberg contraption, but, uh, so what I did was I built a huge, you know, U-shaped box, and then I filled the box with foam, just like the spray foam that you like a sealant, you know, that you'd seal your walls with, and then I shaved down the foam with like a knife or whatever and cut out the rapids. And it was really difficult because, you know, I was changing the angle of the box to get the right flow gradient and then I would have to do this iteratively. So I'd, I'd turn on the water, see if it worked. The hole wouldn't work right. So I'd turn off the water, spray some foam on it, let it dry, come back the next day, cut it to the next shape, turn the water back on again. It didn't work. Turn off the water, spray. Like I did this over and over and over again. And what I did was I wanted to make the holes retentive so that the foamies would get stuck in them. I wanted to make them so that they weren't first in first out so that like the next boat would kick the first boat out. So it had to be what I didn't want is like whoever comes out of the gate first always wins. And uh, I carved an undercut like the Supermax undercut that boats would get stuck in, you know. And so it took me a really long time to get it. It was like uh, this was like my, um, you know, Rube Goldberg meets my own little you know, Michelangelo, it was my, <laughs> my passion project masterpiece.
0: Um,
1: and, I guess and it worked people, and it worked awesome.
0: Yeah. is it? I guess for people that don't know, super max is kind of like the signature rapid on Bailey. It's a class five rapid with two parts and it's a really cool rapid. that kind of does a little S shape and has a couple holes at the end, but um, I'll, uh, I'll link in the show notes, the video, so people can actually see it. But uh, I, I will, I will back you up that people love the foamy race. It was a big hit that night for sure. Not
1: just yeah, them. so when we finally did it, I think we did it for two years, the The foamy, the foamy race, you know, it, it was not built to last. I was just winging it at Home Depot. I had no clue what I was doing. You know, I just did it and kind of it worked, but it was falling apart fast. Like it was like a... <laughs> anyway, but um, when we did it, it was 20 bucks to enter and we did like final four brackets where four boats would race and whoever won that bracket would advance final final bracket won a boat and like the you know runners up and i mean we had all kinds of it was so much fun we had all kinds of prizes of gear to give out and it was a riot i mean the foamy the pipe separated at one point right when we were going to st- just sprayed the whole crowd and it was like shut her down <laughs> you know so the foamy race was just a lot of fun and excitement people still talk about that they're like oh man i remember the foamy race like where is it and i You know, sadly, the uh, the foamy race was not built to last. But while it was there, it was the best.
0: Yeah, it was a lot of work, but I think I think people did appreciate it. Well, let's let's move on. uh, You know, you can talk as much or as little as you want about this, but let's talk a little bit about some of the controversy around Bailey Fest because, like, not you you talked about all the great people that made it happen, but not everybody was happy about this this happening
1: yeah well there's um you know are you are you thinking about the landowners or yeah um are there some other things that maybe maybe there's there's um, other things
0: but this is this is the one that seemed to be front and center for everybody
1: well um you know there's a you know one thing i should say is uh you know just full disclosure you know not everything works great you know when I mean, we're kayakers. You know, I didn't run Bailey Fest as a business. My goal was net zero, like a nonprofit. Like I just wanted to get enough back from the entrance fees and the foamy race proceeds to pay for all the stuff I had to pay for, like the the permits and the land deal and the insurance and the porta potties and like it. It cost a fair bit of cash, um, and so I partnered with AW. And, um, I told AW, Hey, let's partner. I need some, I felt like I needed credibility, you know, and I kind of wanted to hand it off to somebody eventually. Like I wanted to partner with AW or CW or somebody. And I told AW, Hey, if we make profits, you know, I'll donate those. I'm not here to make money. I just want to do a great event. So they were all fired up about it. But the year I built the Foamy race, I put so much money into the foamy race <laughs> that there were no profits. And I really stubbed my toe with AW. They were like, what? Like, <laughs> you promised to give us some profits, but you like blew all this money on this foamy race that was unnecessary. So not everybody was happy with the foamy race. I still feel badly um, for AW. I did sign up to be a lifetime member. That <laughs> that only goes part way through. So AW, if you're listening, I love you guys. Sorry, I'm a kayaker. I'm not always the best at that stuff, but I tried. Um, But the big controversy was the landowners. Um, Bart was the landowner in the Paddle Inn, and he's super cool. Below Bart's property is the um, River Cliff property, which has got multiple owners in this kind of little, very posh community. They did not like kayakers. They did not like BART. In fact, they were in like a feud with BART. So first year at Bailey Fest, we put maybe 100 kayakers through the canyon. Nobody was wiser. I didn't even know that the landowners had a problem. Um, the key thing about the landowners, though, that I should say is a kind of a level set is Four, four Falls is a big is is one of the big class five or you know five minus rapids. It's the first big rapid on Bailey. It's private property all the way from the put-in to the end of first falls or four falls. The issue is first falls is a very nasty rapid with a, a difficult rapid. That's blind horizon line. You got to scout it at minimum. Most people portage it. So, by definition, if you're running Bailey, you have to get out of the river there at a minimum to scout to run it safely. Problem with Colorado, but it's on private property. So the problem with Colorado law is Colorado law has not established these ownership rights. Many other states have allowed portage or allowed, you know, river runners to walk up to the high water mark. Colorado does not have legal precedent. So this huge debate between fishermen and kayakers and landowners of that it's trespassing. So basically if you get out of your boat to walk on private property, you're trespassing, you're on their land. And so knowing this private property issue Four falls was always this delicate issue. that was well known in the community you know, everybody would talk about it. It was posted on mountain buzz, like be very respectful of the landowners. You know, we want to preserve, we don't want to screw up our rights. There were several runs in Colorado where the landowners were not cool, not uncommon to have a landowner come out with a gun or chase you off or have very bad access problems. This was really tricky.
0: So I would say say it was was definitely... I would say it was always, you always felt that when you were there. I mean, I, especially when I first started running it, I never ran first falls. I always got out. Sometimes you kind of wanted to, to lap it, but you felt like lap the last part of it, but you felt like you shouldn't because someone might come and yell at you. And I always just kind of quickly got in my boat and took a piece of trash with me. It definitely felt like, you know, you were, you were in this wilderness run, but all of a sudden you felt like people were kind of angry that you were there. Um, I, I, I know I always. That's right. When I, when I paddled down there.
1: Definitely. And there were, you could see the houses just, you know, like a quarter mile, whatever upstream. You pass by these houses, you know, that are just these beautiful, rich people's houses. So you know they're there. And this is right before it goes into the canyon. So um, first Bailey Fest, we probably had 100 people and we didn't see the landowners. It was no big deal. And quite frankly, I would not I didn't even think about the landowners. Like, It didn't even occur to me, which in hindsight is kind of stupid. Um, And then second year at Bailey Fest, it just turns out that the landowner, like the prime landowner that would use this property regularly, because it's beautiful. The Four Falls, like there's a little old railroad railroad narrow gauge grade, which is now just a trail. And like a beautiful multi-tiered set of waterfalls and little, you know, crystal clear bubbling pool. It's just spectacular. They would go there with their family and hang out, whatever. Well, he came down with his little tiny pickup truck and was like cleaning up and cutting branches or whatever, just doing a little weekend cleanup. He didn't know Bailey Fest was going down. And here comes 200 kayakers. And they're hooting and hollering. They're all over the place. They're like whipping it out and peeing in the river, which is we do in Colorado. That's what you're supposed to do. But they look at this as just like degenerates. And they got so pissed off that all these people were on their land. Um, They got in touch with me and they they were just like so pissed. They were like, we are shutting you down. If you try to bring more than 10 people in, we're calling the cops. And anybody that gets out on our property, we're going to call the cops and have them arrested for trespassing. And This, like, it just freaked me out. I went from, like, instead of, it's, I was on top of the world thinking I just did something awesome. And then I just had this crushing reality of, by getting a release and trying to do a festival, I may have just shut down Bailey completely by pissing off the landowners. Because if we can't Portage, we can't get in. And it's all private. And so, like, I was just freaking out. And so... I didn't know what to do. And so I just, the first thing I thought of is I just lost Bailey single-handedly. I ruined it for everybody. And it's all private property for the first four miles. So there's no way we can get in. And so the first thing I started doing was I got to figure out a way for us to hike in below Four Falls. And it's going to be like a mile or two, this horrible, like it's going to be like, You're going to California to hike through the Sierras or something. (laughs) And so I started looking at the maps and uh, trying to figure it out. And I was sitting there in the eddy below four falls and the landowners have cables across the river where the property lines change from one landowner Mm -hmm. to another. There are several cables that you go under in Bailey uh, on the lead end, And I just had this thought. I was like, it seems It seems to me like I was skeptical. Okay, there's a property line at the bottom of this beautiful set of waterfalls where it's private property upstream in the beautiful waterfalls, and it's forest service downstream. But there's no roads. Nobody can get in there but the private property owners and kayakers that float through. So if I'm a landowner, of course I'm going to put my private property fence below all the awesome waterfalls. So I just had this skeptical thought of like, what if that's not the property line? Like, what if they're just, just like, you know, fence disputes between property owners. Like, no, I put my fence over here, but like you put the fence over there. So I did some digging around and started trying to find out where the property line was to try to figure out where we could hike in or other access. And what I found was, really confusing. I found one map that showed the property line where it was at the bottom of the four falls. And then I found another map that showed the property line as a different property line that would have been above four falls. And, um, and where, where did you, so find I maps? was totally con-
0: Where did you find that? I was just, on- look it up?
1: yeah, so it was online. I would call up, a. Uh, what what I, it was several maps so i got maps from like the um what was this it was park county um park county property records was one set of maps where i could find the parcel of the landowners on the map and then i would have forest service maps looking okay. at the forest service um you know so i'd have to put multiple maps together and gotcha. the maps and You know, where First Falls is, is a very signature little curve in the river, kind of like a little oxbow kind of thing. You can tell where it is. So, you know, I was putting and then I was using Google Maps, too. So I was like triangulating between multiple sources. And um, the Forest Service maps were the ones that I, I found two Forest Service maps. And the thing to know about property in Colorado and in the West is when the West was settled, they did this thing. um, It was the, they did a big survey and what they made was things called townships. They were big squares, six miles by six miles, and they subdivided each square into sections. So there's 36, one mile, one square mile sections. And then they subdivided those sections. Um, And they did this in like the late 1800s with a dude, with a horse and a length of chains going through the mountains. So, what they would do is they would establish corners of the squares, which were corner monuments. And then they would come back in and subdivide that big square with smaller squares. So all of the property in Colorado would be designated as the, the property line would be the North line of section one of this township going to like the Southwest quarter of this. So these, the boundary, it's not like you own to the river or you like in the East coast, it's uh old, you know, English property law systems. Like you own from the river to the tree, to the rock. In in Colorado, it's all these grids. Um, so I found two maps and I didn't know what was going on. And like, I called the County, I called people, people didn't know. And so finally I called the forest service. And I mean, this whole process is like, months. I mean, it's like detective work, sorting through all this information. And what I finally got was got somebody in the forest service that knew what they were talking about. And what they said was, Oh, the one map that you see that shows that showed four falls as private property. That map was before we redid the corner monuments and redid the um, boundaries. And in 1986, we redid the boundaries, and that changed the lines. And so the story was, the original guy came out and put the four corners in the big square. The -hmm. next guy came out like 15 years later. He couldn't find the original corner to make the next square. So he said, I'm just going to start from here and place a new corner monument where I think it should be, because he's... Going through this steep canyon,
0: hmm.
1: you know, on horseback. Yeah. So it's and so a this happens all yeah. over the West. Yep. So, but here's the thing: the way the federal government works is, the first corner is the legally binding one. You can't go in and put a second corner just because you didn't find the right one. Hmm. So there were all these small mistakes that normally, okay, your property line moves hundred feet. Well, this one just happened to be because of the angle of moving the line really close to being parallel to the river. That small change made the property line move 400 feet upstream to be upstream of first falls, meaning the new property survey that corrected the old mistake meant that four falls was public land. But the thing is the the landowners and the original deeds all the original deeds were titled and had plats drawn with the old map. So the landowners never knew as far as all their documents were concerned, they owned it. Yeah. And so my question to the forest service was, well, what's the legally binding what's right. And he's like, federal law, the new line is right. We've gone back. We've been correcting these things for the last 50 years. And he's wow. like, People are pissed. Sometimes the new line goes right through the middle of a house, and we're like, sorry, you, we're gonna demolish your house. That's amazing. And so this is one of those federal jurisdiction things that worked out in our favor. So through the conversations with one of these Forest Service officials, you know, what I what I went and did after I figured that out, like working with the GIS department, then I called up the head of the Forest Service and I said, Sir, there are private property owners that are falsely claiming that public land is private land and they are harassing national forest users like myself. And I would like to ask for your help to clearly mark out the national forest boundary so that they know once and for all what the correct property line is. And he said, okay, we'll do it. It took them nine months to get to it. So I was like waiting on pins and needles and I kept this really tight, didn't really tell anybody. I didn't tell the landowners at all. And so Bailey Fest was coming up. I still was planning Bailey Fest, kind of thinking that the issue would be resolved. And the landowners had said, like, if you do Bailey Fest again, we're arresting everybody. And so it was this like tenuous moment of is it can happen in time, what have you. Right before Bailey Fest, they went out and they remarked it and they put this little yellow sign. There's two of them. They nailed it to a tree, and it's got the little township range markers. So when you're portaging First Falls and you get out in that little eddy and there's a little yellow thing marked on the tree, that's where the Forest Service came in. And the landowners found out by seeing the Forest Service signs. And they called the Forest Service, and they asked the same. They were lawyers, I think. So they knew that the federal law was... There was primacy of federal law and they had, there was no legal, there's no appeal, no court battle, no whatever. And it just totally shut them up. I've never heard from them again. So it was, I mean, this was this crazy roller coaster of we got Bailey fest to like, Oh my God, I almost shut down Bailey because these landowners are going to shut us down to this, trying to save it, to find a hike in route, which led to this discovery that, actually the property line has been changed without anybody knowing it, that then took this really tender private property on a must portage rapid and made it public property for perpetuity. And so it was just this, I mean, it was a huge win. It was like, I was so pumped up and, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know how long Bailey Fest will go. Um, It's not a guaranteed thing, but Four Falls is going to be public land for perpetuity now. And uh, to me, that is, as far as like something, that's one of the things I'm most proud about. Um, You know, more than anything I've ever done at work or whatever, like that's the one thing that sticks to me because I feel like I was able to do something that benefited the kayaking community, which is the community that I love, you know, and so man, I love that. And it felt so good to stick it to those asshole landowners. Oh God, it felt so good. Um, well, so amazing, that was a total story. victory.
0: It's an amazing story. And I mean, people have been boating Bailey for at least the nineties, you know, if, if not a little before that, I'm not sure, but, uh, it's been an issue for decades and now it's a, it's a completely non-issue. And of course, kayakers, you know, like we, we are there because we love the land and it, You know, it's completely respected. And if anything, it's probably more pristine than it was when, um, you know, people thought it was their land and they were manipulating the shore and the riverbed and stuff. So um, it's an awesome story. And it's such a critical, critical area for this run, which is one of the signature runs in Colorado. So amazing story. Huge, huge kudos to you for following up on it, even if it was an act of desperation. But you made it happen. (laughs) Thanks, man. put Put the pieces of the puzzle together. So it's a really cool story
1: yeah it was great you know the i guess the last thing to put in there is um i also think it really speaks to uh river karma you know kayakers you know we all know that river karma is real you know what comes around goes around and um and it's like uh what i what i think about is if those people would not have been jerks and would and would have just been cool like bart Berger it would have never forced me to go try to salvage it. Nobody would have ever uncovered that that was public property and they could have had de facto reign over that and controlled kayakers and just kind of kept this like quasi ownership. It wouldn't have been found until it might've never been found like for like somebody selling real estate. I don't know that somebody would have ever found this out.
0: Nobody's going in there to hike or do anything like that, right? It's only kayakers that go in there. I mean, it's... So they they lost it it because
1: they were jerks. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It must have been a huge hit to their property values and everything too, right? This beautiful piece of land is no longer considered part of their property.
1: Yeah, they lost like 400 feet of pristine waterfall streamfront that is... I've never seen them out there since. I used to see them, I don't know, once... Once a year, maybe or something, but I don't know. Yeah, at um, least, yeah. They're out of our hair, though.
0: Um, cool. Well, all right. We're uh, we're at almost an hour, so we probably should wrap it up. But that was that was an awesome story, and it's great that you shared that with us. Um, anything else you want to add? You have any hopes or dreams for the future of Bailey Fest, or or anything about Bailey itself?
1: Yeah, there's there's a couple things that kind of like a prologue. There is. Um, you know, I worked so hard to do it, but, you know, when you building something's fun, but it was a lot of work and it was too much for me to keep on doing. I got to a point in my life with, you know, work and family and what have you that I couldn't keep on doing it. And I always realized that you can't make something be just one individual because if something happens to them, it just drops dead. And so I really wanted to find somebody to take it over or an or, best was an organization. So Colorado Whitewater. Um, ended up taking it over, you know, good friend of mine, Pete, um, Pete Bland took it over first. He's, you know, been with Colorado whitewater for many years. He did a great job. And then he ended it off now to uh, Tim Coonan, who's, you know, done a great job of carrying the torch too. So, you know, I'm happy that I got it into the hands of an organization that will, that has been around for like, I don't know, 50 years or something that no matter whether kayakers come and go, once the organization has it, it can have some legs and keep on going. So I'm really thankful for Colorado Whitewater and Pete and Tim for keeping the dream alive because it's kind of like my baby. You know, like I built it, but I couldn't, I just couldn't carry it forward forever. So I'm just really thankful to those guys for keeping it going. And hopefully we can keep it going for as long as possible. It's, it's not a guarantee, though, you know landowner changes or permitting or Denver water saying we can't do it anymore. It's so, um, and the big moral of the story to me is be a CW member, be an AW member. This kind of river stewardship happens because there's organizations out there that support this. So like, um, we all owe it as members of the kayaking community to support that. Um, it's kind of my big takeaway.
0: Absolutely. That's an awesome message. And those organizations like they don't cost much and it's it's huge to, to be a member and to contribute a little bit of money to it. So it's a, that's a great way to wrap it up. So thanks, Ian. Appreciate you coming on and we'll have to have you on again sometime soon.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, hope you have a good uh, bedtime story with your kid about the uh, the swims. I've got another couple of good ones for you from this year that. We should talk about the takeout next time.
0: (laughs) We'll definitely have to add him into the repertoire. All right.